We now have first-person intel from inside the Westview anomaly. What are we looking at here? Is it an alternate reality, time travel? It's a sitcom. Starring two Avengers? That's a working theory. Uh-oh, it's Ben Bailey-Smith. And Sasha Bates. And you are now locked into the alternate universe that has shrinked the box, where we put our favorite TV characters into therapy and try to get to the heart of why they behave in such surprising and, frankly, extreme ways. Me, I'm an actor and a, and a client. Um, I, have, uh, I have therapy regularly, had it this morning, in fact. Sasha over here is the uh, psychotherapist and the expert. Together, we'll explore what makes these characters tick and hopefully get a little intel for ourselves as well. Now, Sasha, the clip we heard at the top, please explain. That was WandaVision, and it's a show which, like a lot of the characters we look at, isn't quite what it seems on the surface. It it presents as a dated sitcom about a young couple in love, Wanda and Vision. But it turns out that behind that facade, they are, in fact, both superheroes or Avengers. And the comedy is actually a front for a, a tragedy, that Vision is actually dead. And the whole sitcom theme is Wanda's way of keeping him and his memory alive. So we've got many layers of false appearances to to uncover um, as we watch Wanda showing how complex grief is. But I just just feel perfectly primed for this, Sash. You know, I had therapy this morning. After I record this, I'm going to get on a plane to Jamaica, which sounds like incredibly glamorous and and fancy, but actually I am a Jamaican and I'm heading over there uh, as the result of a, a family bereavement, you know? So it feels so apt to be talking about a show that really gets to grips with the pain of the past, Mm -hmm. bereavement and grief, and how we do or do not deal with these things. Yeah, I mean, I think it is such a fantastic depiction of of grief and hiding from it and confronting it. And I mean, it's also a very topical subject for me because I lost my husband um, mm. five years ago, very suddenly and out, out of the blue. And I ended up writing two books about grief. That was my way of kind of making sense of, of what happened. So I really feel for Wanda. I really recognise so much of what she's going through and her methods of of dealing with it. The old sort of five stages model of grief, which is the only kind of theory that most people know about grief, it's so much more complex than than that. And I think WandaVision shows us brilliantly how fragmented life can can be. And she does it as well by, it, she makes a very concrete representation of the thing that we all want to do, which is to create an alternative reality where your, your loved one is still alive. And she actually, she's got the power to do that. So... For all of you out there who uh, sort of theorised and wondered what the heck was going on when you were watching WandaVision, we will go as deep as we can into Wanda's psyche and and into the extra meaning behind those Technicolor toy planes, the mysterious beekeepers. So as we descend into the basement of truth and fear, I suppose we should warn you there will be swearing and there'll be full-on spoiler-tastic chat as ever. But you know the rules. Strap yourself in and welcome to Shrink the Box. All right, so it's been a minute. Of course, since we uh, tucked into that incredible series, so here's a quick reminder of where we're at. Elizabeth Olsen's Wonder invents a sitcom 
where her husband Vision, who's played by Paul Bettany, who was killed not once but twice in Avengers Infinity War, if you remember that, is now alive. And she does this so they can both live happily inside this town called Westview in New Jersey, which wanders surrounded by this magnetic field in which no one can leave or enter. It's known as the Hex. And each episode is set in a different decade. We start in the 50s. Pastiche is the TV of the time really successfully. This is also Wanda's tool to move us through her journey of grief and her growing realisation that she can't keep Vision alive, which is, you know, kind of the tragedy of the thing. But then there's a B story as well, which is the outside world trying to break into Westview to free the townspeople that Wanda's sort of trapped within her fantasy, almost like her slaves. Wanda finally has to face reality during this big confrontation with her neighbour Agatha. It was Agatha all along in her basement, which is quite the metaphor, um, which is something we'll, we'll dig into in a bit. So that's just the bare bones. And in true Marvel style, it is, of course, multi-layered, but there's also humour. There's, you know, there's tenderness and, and nuance. So with that in mind, it's 2pm once more. We have a very interestingly dressed individual <laughs> um, waiting in the um, communal space of Sasha's office. Sash, who is going to open your door and step in today? Today, it is a woman called Wanda Maximoff, and she is from a fictional country called Sokovia. And she's already no stranger to grief. Both of her parents died in an explosion when she was young, and she lost her twin brother Pietro after they both joined the Avengers. So she's got superpowers, which is kind of unusual in one of my clients. But these are heightened at times of stress. And... She also is able to harness what they call chaos magic. And we'll see that she uses all of this to her full advantage in her attempts to deny Vision's death and try to keep him alive. All right. So for a bit more context, let's uh, let's have a little listen. No, I'm not going to tell you. Is that? <laughs> it looks like her. You move at the speed of sound and I can make a pen float through the air. Who needs to abbreviate? Look, I know it's been a crazy few years on this planet, but he's dead, right? Not blipped, dead. Excellent plan. Where's the tenderizer? What am I looking at? You, what is this? Where's this coming from? Out there. You didn't answer the back door for your upside down cage. Oh, hi. Is it authentic? I'm not sure how to answer that. Is it happening in real time? Is it recorded, fabricated? I don't know, I don't know, and I don't know. What do you know? My equipment registered an extremely high level of CMBR. That's... Relic radiation dating back to the Big Bang. Yeah. Entwined was a broadcast frequency, so I had your goons pick me up a sweet vintage TV, and when I plug this bad boy in, voila, sound and picture. Dinner is served. <laughs> And that was the sound of Kat Dennings and Josh Stamberg playing Dr. Darcy Lewis and the acting director of Sword, Tyler Haywood, respectively, in episode four, We Interrupt This Program. And that was directed by Matt Shackman and written by Bobak Esfajani and Megan McDonald. We'll give you the full credits for all the clips, as ever, used at the end of this podcast. 
So, Sash, you mentioned that WandaVision is all about grief. What would be the first thing you noticed about Wanda if she were your client? At the beginning of the series, Vision's death is still very recent and Wanda is deep in denial. She can't take on board the fact that he's actually died and she's living in a sort of alternate reality, which because of her powers, she's able to create. But we all live in an alternate reality of not being able to to process this huge news that somebody who is so central and instrumental in your life is suddenly not there anymore. It just it, it can't compute. And so... There's a bit of our brain that knows what's going on and there's a bit of our brain that is completely denying that. And it can be really strong, that that denial, that refusal to, to accept. And also it's very confusing time because even though you know they are dead, the part of you thinks they, they aren't. And I think we see that she has had the rug pulled out from under her life um, because even though she's created a fantasy 1950s sitcom to try and make life very safe. At the same time, plates go flying around the air. She's got this appointment on her calendar that she doesn't understand. She's trying to work out how they came to be there, what they're doing there, what this heart um, on the calendar signifies. So she's very confused, but she's also trying to pin it down in a very safe world of 1950s sitcom land. So what is it about the stages that bugs you? Is it the the sort of neat and tidy order that they, they, they get put in? Yeah. Um, it's, that it seems to be sort of universally. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. I think grief isn't linear. All the stages, as they're called, are there. So definitely denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. They're all in there. I'm not saying they're not, but I sure. just think there's far more than five. And yeah, stages suggests that they proceed in an orderly fashion. Denial often is the first thing because you're in shock. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so that 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 one I don't really have too much of an issue with. It, it's absolutely true, and it happens. It happens very but early on. But it can on. also, for me, from personal experience, mean two things. So you can have that very immediate denial that operates for no longer than minutes, where you're just like, "No, I was just talking to him. Yeah. This can't be possible." Mm. But it can also pop back way later. You're sort of trying to live your life as if they were still here. What we tend to mainly call denial is is shock and shock of any kind yeah. kind of shuts down the thinking brain. Your brain will only give you so much re reality as you can cope with. And if it's going to feel too terrifying and too painful, then it's almost like it wraps you in, in bubble wrap to protect you from too much knowledge. But, you know, bits of the bubble wrap get popped as you as you go go along and her bubble wrap is a very uh, extravagant version she she she's got an entire town wrapped in in bubble wrap but yeah denial can come in at any time for me like for about a year or so waking up first thing you know you have those few moments of assuming life is as it was and then you have to re-remember as your brain comes back online oh shit no it's yeah, it, he's not that here feeling of the person being next to you in bed mm, yeah and it takes it takes a moment to compute that oh no actually let's delve deeper into this kind of idea of created worlds here's, here's a little clip from uh, from the show wonder is there something special about today? Well, I know the apron is a bit much, dear, but I am doing my best to blend in. No, no, there on the calendar, someone's drawn a little heart right above today's date. Oh, yes, the heart. Mm. Well, don't tell me you have forgotten, Viz. Forgotten? 
Oh, Wanda, I'm incapable of forgetfulness. I remember everything. That's not an exaggeration. In fact, I'm incapable of exaggeration. Well, then tell me what's so important about today's date. What was the question again? Oh, well, perhaps you've forgotten yourself. Hey, heavens no. I've been so looking forward to it. As have I. Today, we are celebrating. You bet we are. It's the first time we have ever celebrated this occasion before. It's a special day. Perhaps an evening. Of great significance. To us both. Naturally. Obviously. Exactly. <laughs> well done, us. Hmm, well done, us. So you can hear from that the vibe is very much like I Love Lucy, sort of Dick Van Dyke show, that kind of 50s vibe. Why has wonder created a sitcom out of, out of all the, the, the worlds she could exist in. You know, anything that goes wrong can easily be patched up and put back together. And they generally depict happy families and neighbours dropping in on you. And it's a very safe and controlled world when your own world feels very unsafe and very uncontrolled. And there's a sort of nostalgia of, oh, things could be perfect if only. Um, and I think the 50s sitcoms in, in particular portrayed a world where everybody knew their place and everybody was, you know, well presented and nothing went wrong. And, and a woman was looked after. And the woman was looked after. Yeah, very good point. As we see, she soon realises that she's not really in control because um, reality starts to intrude, which is what happens as you as you move through. And much as I try and avoid using the words words like stages, mm. I tend to use more words like sort of flavours or shapes or, or, or waves. And, you know, she'll get waves of reality puncturing through. And in the second episode, which is um, a 1960s episode, we start to see some of those things coming coming in. There's a little aeroplane that, that flies in that has come from outside and they do a magic show as well which also creates this sense of, you know, all oh, things are going wrong and can we keep the illusion in place? Mm. You get the sense that all hell is going to break loose either outside or inside her. Mm. Um, so knowing that she's carrying all this tension, um, which you probably would have been able to see in her preamble on, mm -hmm. on the couch. What, what do you think is the next thing you'd, you'd notice about Wonder? Well, one thing that often doesn't get mentioned enough, I think, in grief is the fear, the terror of mm. how how do I survive this? And I think we do get that sense of threat in the second episode. The sort of things go bang in the night and there's a feeling of, of something or somebody lurking outside. <gasps> what was that? Wanda? Yes, dear? Are you using your powers to turn on the light? Yes, dear. Allow me, sweetheart. What do you see? Only your lovely rose bushes. That's all? Are you using your night vision vision? I assure you, my love, I see nothing amiss. You have absolutely no reason to be... No! <laughs> you know, the... 
the the canned laughter makes it even more creepy. Mm. You get that sort of Stepford Wivesy type mm. feel to things. There's a scene that I like where she's with some of the other women in the street and they're planning this magic show that they're going to put on and voices start to come in through the radio um, and there's this sense of sort of otherworldliness and then one of the wives is holding a glass and it shatters and I really like that as a metaphor for how fragile her grip on sanity is because part mm. of the fear comes from feeling like you're going mad because nothing makes sense. Her fear and her sense of being besieged that comes across really strongly. Yeah, that's really good. I never thought that about the glass. You know, just that that is 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 the uh, the emotional kind of uh, variation on realizing you're you're out of your depth in the sea, like your feet can't touch the ground, or when you're when you're lost as a kid and you you think the 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 legs next to you are the legs of your mm. your mum or dad, and you look up and it's not them. It's like yeah. terrifying. It is like sci-fi. We talked about trying to keep things as they were, or as you remember them in the external world. Um, but, but what about those interior conversations that people have following death, you know, where we berate ourselves? I, I, I had it about a, a, a friend that I lost a couple of years ago simply because I had planned to go and meet him and didn't. And you get that narcissistic thing of, well, if I was there... Do you know what I mean? I could have said, don't do this, don't do that, you know, which is, is obviously nonsense. But when there's no riposte to it, the person's not there to say, mm-hmm. I don't worry about it. You, you wouldn't have made a difference. Yeah. You pile it on yourself. What is that about? Well, I think it's a couple of things. I think but that by taking some of the blame onto yourself it's almost like taking control because you feel so out of control there's nothing you could have done but by sort of telling yourself that if I'd done this or if I'd done that it is a way of feeling like oh I could have controlled it so it puts you back in the driving seat a little bit there is a sense of bargaining like I say that's one of the five stages mentioned this notion of if I did it differently, mm. it's a form of magical thinking, a way yeah, of thinking really if I replaying and replaying, always with a different ending of, oh, they survive. So for a long time, I've, I've had the belief that death presents itself as this extra, extraordinary thing. Uh, that's how we take it on board because it's such a surprise, it's such a shock and we don't know how to deal with it because it doesn't happen to us every day. Mm. So when it does happen, everything around it we tend to make extraordinary. Mm. Whereas actually it was probably just quite ordinary. Mm. I, I still know people who think Bob Marley, like swear Bob Marley was murdered by the CIA, like poisoned. They can't accept that an amazing person mm. like that could die of something really boring like cancer. And I thought about it in in like normal terms. I say normal, like just non-famous people terms, like friends, partners, relatives that we've lost. We still do a similar thing because the death to us on a personal level is is kind of extraordinary. We look back at things that led up to it and start going, well, you know, if I'd have done this, if I'd have done that. And we've just got no idea about like the randomness mm. of life. 
Yeah, and, and I, absolutely, and and I think it's about trying to make sense of something that's nonsensical. I mean, mm. how how can it be that somebody was there one day and then they're literally just not there? It's like, well, as as we were saying, you know, where where have they gone? How how can that possibly? How can we live in a world where people can just disappear? Yeah. We're trying to create a narrative where mm. it does make sense, and I think conspiracy theories are a sort of heightened version of that. Of oh, well, it had to be there had to be a reason behind it. Because if there's no reason, then it could happen to any of us. And that is a really terrifying prospect. It's just a way of alleviating fears, a way of making the confusion less confusing and trying to bring it back into something that's manageable. Mm, Um, One day it will all make sense. All right. Well, we still need to chat about scary beekeepers, uh, what wonder means by having a case of the Mondays and how destruction can actually help us. So, hey, don't go anywhere. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back after this commercial break, unless you're a subscriber, in which case, no advertisements. This show is supported by BetterHelp. Uh, now, sometimes you're carrying a weight on your shoulders, but you can't find the right way to open up about it and maybe offload a bit to others. If we keep things bottled up, it can really affect us in a bad way. And therapy is a safe and anonymous place to air whatever's been troubling you. Uh, and I know this personally. It always feels better just to speak your truth. It, it, honestly, you genuinely feel lighter. And the moan can tell you all about feeling light or heavy. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash shrinkthebox today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash shrinkthebox. Hello, it's William and Jordan here from Help, I Sexted My Boss. And on Tuesday, our show at the London Palladium will be streamed live into cinemas. So if you want an evening full of laughs and outrageous problems and dilemmas, then come along and join us on the big screen. Help as Sex and My Boss Live is showing everywhere and everyone's welcome. Go to sexatmyboss.com slash cinema to get your tickets now. That's sexatmyboss.com slash cinema. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. And we are back. So, Sash, there's a guy wearing what looks like a beekeeper's outfit who crawls out of a manhole cover. Um, It's a bit sinister. What's it all about? On one level, this is an emissary sent by the outside world trying to just break into the hex to try and break into Wanda's world. But on another level, I think it is sinister. It is this sense of other people trying to pull her out of the cocoon of nostalgia and and fantasy that she's in. Mm. And she has to really resist that because she doesn't want to face reality. She wants to stay 
nestled in the safe world. Right, yeah, because beekeepers sitcom. kind of break into your house, right? If you're a bee, I mean, and they sort of, you know, rearrange your home in a, in some way. Yeah, the, I mean, the only rearranging that Wanda wants to happen is the rearranging that, that she does. And actually, I think that actually ties in quite well with this notion that she's, she's nesting. I mean, we always think of nesting as something that, you know, new mums do to make the world safe for their new baby. But I think grieving people nest and create a home for themselves because they're trying to make the world safe for their sort of grieving inner child, the bit of them that feels mm. completely infant-like again without the person that is normally protecting them, whether that's a parent or a, yeah. a partner or the person that makes them makes them makes the world feel an okay place. And it's a real intrusion. And other people can feel really intrusive as well, even the ones that are trying to help. I mean, I get asked so often, how do you help a grieving person? It's the one thing that everybody wants to know because it speaks to the powerlessness that we all have. You see somebody in pain and you want to help them. We'll talk about this later with Wanda's journey. But that feeling that nobody else can do anything to help mm. really adds to a sense of isolation and loneliness and the sense yeah. that you're you're on your own in, in this. And you are on your own in this. Nobody can really help. They can be supportive, but they can't take the pain away. Yes, that is very true. Although I would say that as soon as you open up on what your pain is, help is out there. But you, you do have to reach out first. Everybody's grief is unique. And you're absolutely right in that talking to other people and sharing the pain and knowing that you're not alone and that there are commonalities. Mm. But it's also really important to know that the worst pain ever is your own pain. And nobody has experienced the pain just like you have. And no, that, that, has to, that has to be honoured. Somebody might want to say, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't, don't, don't worry about me. And they might find support and help as quite intrusive because they need to take themselves off into a dark corner sure. and, and rock slowly to and fro. Other people might be unable to bear the thought that they've got to be left alone and they might need the house filled with people so that they don't feel alone. So yeah. it's really important to balance out the this is common, you're not going mad, other people have been through it and other people have survived it with the acknowledgement that, yeah, but for you, this is the worst pain you've ever felt and nobody else does know what you're going through because nobody else has lost that same person as you and nobody else has had the unique set of experiences and traumas that you have. And we see this with Wanda as, as well because, you know, she's lost vision but this comes on top of a lifetime of having lost her twin brother, yeah. of having lost her parents. She mm -hmm. lost her parents at a really early age. Even if she coped well, I mean, of course she does cope well. She becomes an Avenger. I mean, you, you can't really <laughs> cope better than that. But there's definitely something called accumulated grief. Yes. And, and, and with that, there is always the risk of shutdown. And, and maybe we're seeing that occur as her sitcom progresses towards the mm, 90s. Mm. I mean, I was a young teen in the 90s and I spent a lot of time just like Wanda hidden under a duvet. <laughs> so I know where she's coming from. But yeah. when we see that, what are we to take from that? I mean, ha has has she completely down tools? Is this the beginnings of depression? Let's, let's, let's hear a clip. Look, we've all been there, right? <sighs> Letting our fear and anger get the best of us, intentionally expanding the borders of the false world we created. <laughs> Ah! 
As punishment for my reckless evening, I plan on taking a quarantine-style staycation. A whole day, just to myself. That'll show me. It's probably just a case of the Mondays. <laughs> what do you reckon, Sash? Yeah, well, I mean, grief does evolve. And the acute shock and denial of the initial readjustment does give way to a more day-to-day mundanity of, oh, right, the, every day is, this is, again. is this again. Yeah, yeah and I, I think what I found was, I mean, again, I don't like to put timescales on it, but for about the first year, you know, I was speeding and I was on a on a go quick kind of like I did everything so at top speed. Never to, to never not be busy, basically. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. I was trying to out outrun it, and mm. the, I think the adrenaline kind of dissipates, and then you have the kind of like the the post sugar crash almost <laughs> of, oh right, so this is really what it is, and the, the, that acute pain becomes more of a chronic pain, and that can feel really depressing and really deadening, and you do lose a sense of what is the point. And she depicts that depression element really well, I think. And again, going to stress, again, it's not like it's only going to come once. It can kind of come of for a few hours. It can come for a few weeks. It can come for a few months. It can come after two days. It can and come after two years. with different levels of intensity within that as well. With different levels of intensity. One of the other sort of newer grief theories that I prefer is called dual process because it acknowledges how dynamic grief is and how you're endlessly swinging to and fro. So mm. you're swinging from reality to denial and back again. And we see that with her, with the, with the intrusion and her ability to take, take things on, on board. But you're also swinging to and fro between the pain of the loss of everything that you're no longer going to have and the pain of the future of, oh, shit, I don't know how to do this on my own. But you're also swinging through the the comfort of the past and the memories and the joy of what, what you had and the can-be-good things in, in the future. So you're going to and fro between the past, the future, between the pain, between the hope, between the denial, between the reality. So it's a constantly swinging pendulum. And so that's why I think dual process shows that you're endlessly yeah, it swinging. It a yeah, better. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally see that. But also... Elements of anger, right? Perhaps at the the fact that you're not feeling better, but in some cases, even at the person who died, is that is that a thing? Definitely. I mean, I think anger is all pervasive. It can be at the person that you've lost. You can be angry at them for dying. I mean, it's not rational, but there's nothing about grief that is rational. Mm. But um, even when it's not their fault, you can still feel angry that they've left you. Yeah. And I used to get really annoyed when people would say things like, oh, he's in a better place. I'm like, I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't want him in a fucking better place. I want him here dealing with this shit with me. How yeah. dare he be in a better place when I'm in the all worst place ever? All his friends and loved ones are here. <laughs> yeah. How, how, what is this place? It yeah. must be incredible. Why, why does he get an escape? route out of this misery. So yes, at times I could get very angry with him and she does get, Wanda does get angry with Vision when he starts to question, hang on, what's going on here? Actually, he's trying to help her evolve and, and move through into a, a more realistic world. And she gets really angry with him. Yeah. And he's trying to get back to the house at one point, I think, and she makes all the traffic lights change to red so right. that he can't. To hold him yeah. <laughs> so so she gets very cross uh, uh, at him trying to say, do you know what? Let me go. Yeah. And I suppose there's the additional element 
with anger of being sort of angry at the universe, which is, is like it's nonsensical as well. But we get that thing of like, why him? Mm. Like he was so he did everything yeah. right. He went to Ethiopia that time and worked with starving <laughs> kids, and he's dead. Oh, there's just huge rage and at the Trump's injustice. Donald Trump still like just walking around. Yeah, you exactly. Know, that kind of thing. You just get like <laughs> super furious. Yeah, yeah, and the the rage is enormous. And I think the other problem with grief is that people think that grief is all about being sad, and actually. They know how to deal with that sort of grief. What they don't know how to deal with is when you're spitting and fuming and raging and being a kind of real... Way harder. And you don't want the tea and biscuits. Yeah. I'm wondering, ultimately, sort of multi-million dollar question, is there any way to just completely avoid Mm -hmm. the grief process? Can you just sidestep it? You can't. You can shut it away and just refuse to go near it and pretend it doesn't happen. But that doesn't mean it's gone away. It just means it's kind of out of consciousness for a while. And it is only for a while because you can't keep it there. It's going to leak out in other ways, in like anger at things that you don't even recognise, this is why I'm angry, or at sadness, or in depression, all different ways that you will label as something else when actually it is it is the grief. And getting back to Wanda, she does have to confront it eventually. I mean, she does everything in her power, and her powers are considerable to not accept it, to not face it. But you talked about the, the basement of truth earlier. When... Agatha metaphorically and literally takes her down into her basement. That depicts how Wanda is having to finally go into those deep, dark places of, oh, God, he is gone and I'm going to have to carry on 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 my own. And yeah, I think the basement is a good metaphor, really, for how, how deep and dark and, and painful it is and why we don't want to get there. We want to keep it locked away. The only way over it is through it. You, you kind of have to allow the sadness and the anger and, and the fear and, and the confusion. But that doesn't mean that you can't do it with support, with my help, God, gradually. Oh, my God. So you just blew my mind, Brie. I suddenly thought, shit, that's what going on a bear hunt's about. There's a children's book called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. I'm sure everyone's heard of it by Michael Rosen who's an incredible, like, one of the greatest children's writers of all time. And he's lost his son, so he knows a bit about grief. Yeah, and he had a book specifically about that mm, for kids, about how to deal with grief, the sad book, which is, uh, I couldn't recommend that enough as a little uh, partner to this episode. But in We're Going on a Bear Hunt, they're going to find this terrifying bear in a cave. All along the journey, there's different obstacles, right? So there's a swamp, there's uh, woods, and the sort of... The poetry of it is like, oh no, there's a there's a swamp. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. We have to go through it. And Wanda I've never does. Thought about that yeah. <laughs> well, it's a it's a brilliant depiction. Maybe that's what it's about. Yeah. Or at least to, in terms of dealing with your darkest fear. Mm. So how does one carry on existing in a world where this other person that's so important to them no longer exists? Like, how do you accept that? Acceptance is another one of those words that you kind of have to be a bit careful with. So some people find it very negative because it's like, oh, accept they've gone, move on, put it behind you, stop living in a fantasy. Or you can see it as quite a positive, like I accept that he's gone, I accept where I am now, and I also accept that my life is going to be different, but that it can still be good. I actually, what I got from that relationship, I'm talking about myself here, and I think for for Wanda as well, because she also lost her husband, 
I can accept that I would not be the person I am now without him. And so I can build on that. And that sort of ties into another theory that I really like, grief theory that I like, which is called continuing bonds, which is saying that just as any relationship has to evolve, I mean, that's just nature, we evolve or, or, or we die, we have to adapt. You know, my relationship with Bill wasn't the same at one year after knowing him as it was 10 years after knowing him. So your relationship when somebody's alive continually evolves. But what we tend to do is we try and think that when somebody dies, we preserve them in aspic. And that's what Wanda tries to do. She tries to preserve vision in aspic in a sitcom. If you think of it as a continually evolving relationship, Bill doesn't know the me that I am now. But I do feel that he's been with me on that journey. Um, And I feel like I've updated my version of what our relationship would be in that, you know, he died at 56. He would now be 61. He wouldn't be the same person. And I'm not the same person. But partly why I'm not the same person is because I've both loved him and lost him. And so that has all fed into the me that I am Mm. now. So I can't remain fixed at the age of 49 when he died. So you can evolve and you can accept that he's gone and I'm going to move on. But he's still with me. I think about him every day. I every decision I make, I think, well, what would Bill say? What would Bill do? I still talk to him. That doesn't mean that I think I'm stuck in the past. I I have a really good life. I have a, you know, I can be happy a lot of the time, but I'm also sad quite a lot of the time. And both those things can be true. So I think there's an acceptance of this is the life that I've got. I'm going to make the best of it. I think another thing with Wanda and the, the metaphors that come out of WandaVision is that she starts to accept that she's got to carry on with the real world, not the fantasy world, when she goes back to see the foundations of the house that they were going to build. That's right. And she realises that Vision's vision of their future, where we're going to be, have our children and, and be happy, that can't happen. She has to accept that. But she can build a whole new life and she can use the strength that she got from being Vision's wife to help her have a new life that is in a way more empowered. It's a bit like that theory of martial arts where you take the enemy's strength and turn it against Mm -hmm. them. And you can take the enemy of grief and say, no, actually, I am really powerful because I have survived my worst nightmare coming true. I have survived the loss of the most important person in my world. And actually... Death holds no fear anymore. Nothing that bad will ever happen again. So it can actually become a real life superpower, not the kind of wonder type superpower. God, who knew you could learn so much from a super witch and a synthesoid? Yeah, I know. But that's that's shrink the box for you. Um, <laughs> that's why we love the show. So thanks a million to all of our amazing listeners for sending in character suggestions. You guys are awesome. Email us at shrinktheBox at somethingelse.com. That's shrinktheBox at something without the G, else.com. Uh, and we've got an email here from Dr. Paula Blair. Uh, we're getting a lot of doctors. Another doctor. Yeah. Wow. I think that's Great. incredible. You know, like doctors care. So we're doing something right. Or I should say you're doing something right. Paula says, hello, Ben and Sasha and production team. A character suggestion for you is Alicia Florick in The Good Wife. Mm, should be great. Yeah, played by Julian Margulies. Paula says she thinks there's plenty to discuss with her, uh, especially as she develops throughout the series. Um, she also says maybe Stella Gibson in The Fall would Ooh, be great yeah. too. Is that is that mm, Gillian Anderson? Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, not seen that one. Uh, um, both get close to characters played by Archie Punjabi, which might be interesting. Mm, interesting. Um, looking forward to seeing who else you get into. Another email from Selena, not our producer, 
in chief, Selena, another one, a uh, different spelling, who says, love the show. Thank you, Selena. Uh, she says, yes, please, to a Carmela Soprano episode, because we did mm, suggest yeah, that, didn't we? Yeah, I'd, I'd still love to do it. If you're looking for suggestions, Selena says, how about digging into Barry from the eponymous show about the assassin turned amateur actor, Ace <laughs> Stuff? Yeah, that's Bill Hader. Bill Hader, my brother told me about it, and it sounds oh, so cool, like right on the line there between like horrific and, and comedic. Assassin turns um, comic. I mean, that's what a great premise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's a fine line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to get on that. Hey, listen, we really would love to cover every single suggestion that we get. And who knows, maybe we will somewhere down the line. Um, so thank you so much for all your interaction. We need it. That's what the show is all about. Do make sure you follow us on, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher, Amazon Music or any of these amazing newfangled places that you can get stuff these days. I can't list them all for your podcasts and, and get our new episodes. And if you want to listen to Shrink the Box with no ads, all you need to do is subscribe to Extra Takes and you just get it all. You just get constant Ben and Sasha. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Like for hours on end, uninterrupted. Plus, ad-free episodes and access to weekly subscriber-exclusive episodes from our very good friends over at Kermode and Mayo's Take. You can start your free trial now by clicking Try Free at the top of the Shrink the Box show page on Apple Podcasts, or if you prefer, go to the website, uh, uh, extratakes.com. All that's left to do now is give a big thank you to our production team. Production management is Lily Hambly. The assistant producer is Bashak Erton. Social media is Jonathan Imieri. The studio engineer is Teddy Riley. And the mix engineer is Jay Beal. The senior producer is Selena Reem. And the executive producer is Simon Paul. Sasha. Who do we have next week? Oh, well, we come crashing back down to earth with a very real and very contemporary hero this time. This is the most critically acclaimed television programme of 2020. It was wow. described by the New York Times as the perfect show for an anxious world. And here is the trailer. I just matched your phone. I don't know. Cool, where did you get that? I just wanted to know how how did last night end? I've got this thing in my head of like this guy. Because now you're you're calling it something that I never. How are you doing? I'm great as long as I'm around people. I did to uh, you know just gather the pieces, any of the pieces. That is the extraordinarily talented Michaela Cole who created, wrote, and uh, co-directed and exec produced I May Destroy You. Nominated nine times at the Emmys, deservedly won two awards for outstanding writing as well as a whole raft of other awards. It is a masterclass in script writing as well as acting. And we're going to be looking at that show and within that show, what else, Sash? Well, you can hear in that clip that our next client, Arabella, is quite like Wanda in that she sounds confused, chaotic. She's unsure of what's real, how to make sense of the world. And it's the same overwhelming effects of the trauma. But in her case, it's not from a death. It's from a physical attack. She's been raped after having been drugged. And it's it's powerful stuff, this show. I mean, it gets us questioning friendship, sex, consent, all the big things that uh, so many of us have to deal with. But 
it's great because it's packed into a depiction of London, which is exciting and fast-paced and fun and loud and really contemporary. Yeah, definitely. And also there's a, a therapist character. So you can mm. tell us how authentic you mm-hmm. think she is. Hey, maybe we need a league table of yeah. fictional therapists. I'm thinking Melfi will be at the top, but you never know. I might just nip off and get you a whiteboard now, actually, Sash. Oh, great. I oh. love being in control of a nice whiteboard. <laughs> Lovely. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye. OK, it's time for me and my fellow nerds to relish the superheroes that uh, create super television, such as WandaVision. The opening clip from the special look trailer was Josh Stamberg as acting director Tyler Haywood, uh, Randall Park as agent Jimmy Woo, and Kat Dennings as Dr. Darcy Lewis. The clip where Wanda, Elizabeth Olsen, and Vision, Paul Bettany, are trying to decide why there's a heart on the kitchen calendar is from Film Before a Live Studio Audience, which is episode one. Wanda turning the lights off and on due to noises outside with vision on hand is from Don't Touch That Dial, episode two. And Wanda having a case of the Mondays is from episode seven, which was called Breaking the Fourth Wall. Jack Schaefer is the creator, writer and exec producer. Exec story editors are Peter Cameron and Mackenzie Dore, who are also writers alongside Laura Donnie, Bobak Esfajani, Megan McDonnell, who's also a story editor, Cameron Squires, who's also a story editor, Jack Kirby, Roy Thomas, John Buscema, Stan Lee, Gretchen Enders, Chuck Hayward, and Megan McDonnell. The director across all episodes is Matt Shackman. It's a Marvel Studios production with distribution by Disney+. Plus. You can see all the episodes on there, and a special thank you to Disney, actually, for the clips. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week.